0: Amen, amen. Hey, uh, over the last few weeks we have been making our way in this journey towards Eastern. As you look around today, you'll find that there are a number of other people sitting beside you that maybe you've not seen on this journey and and most of them are shorter and and, and a lot of them are going to be a little louder during this service. And so today is a family Sunday and so we have our kids who are normally upstairs during our kids worship in here with us. And I just get choked up on on family worship. Anyway, so in the midst of this, you might hear some of them make some noise. You might hear some of them say, is he done yet? And you can just quietly say, let's just pray soon and very soon, right? It gives you a chance to model prayer for your kids. And so uh, this week is Family Sunday, and so it's a chance for our kids to be in here with us. And so what we would ask for those of you who hear those noises is to not cut your head around and scowl and whatnot and just smile politely and nod and say, isn't that a great sound to hear children in the house of the Lord? Amen? Amen. Amen. And for those of you who need more practice, you're going to get to do it again next week uh, for Easter. (laughs) And so we have Family Sunday coming again next week as well. Well, as I said, we are in the midst of this uh, journey towards Easter. And so last week we looked at uh, the prophets, and so Jeremiah and Isaiah and as Jeremiah is kind of transitioning out, he gets to oversee the exile. And so he gets to oversee the fall of Jerusalem as the Jews head off to Babylon and they are in the midst of captivity. Now, if you look at the end of Second Chronicles, we see kind of these things happen really quickly. And so they go up into exile and then Cyrus uh, takes center stage. The Persians come in, they overthrow the Babylonians and Cyrus issues this decree and he says, if you want to go home, go home. If you want to go home, go home. And so what we find over the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is that there are essentially three trips back to Jerusalem. So Ezra uh, gives us two of these, and then Nehemiah covers the third of these. And so we're going to be looking this morning primarily in Ezra, and then also making connection to Jesus' triumphal entry there in Matthew 21. So if you have a couple of fingers or ribbons or pieces of paper, you can put them in Ezra 3 and Matthew 21 hey let me pray for us once again father god we thank you for your word for its clarity for the conviction that comes to our lives as we encounter you in your word God, I pray that this morning that we would find ourselves set free God, I pray that this morning we would find ourselves comforted that in you we would find hope that in your spirit we would find comfort many of us came into this place with burdens with struggles with doubts, and so God, I pray that as we meet you in this place, that we would find ourselves being transformed into not doubters, but worshipers, to not those who are carrying burdens and are heavy laden, but God, that we would be set free as we meet you in this place, God, that we would be set free as we enter into this time of worship. Would your spirit be upon us? Would it empower us in this time? And God, would you be praised in the words of my mouth, in the preaching of your word. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, listen, if you've been here for any length of time, then you've uh, heard me talk about this. But uh, when I was three years old, my dad took a job in Stavanger, Norway. So we moved from rural northwest Louisiana to uh, western Europe, far western Europe. And for the next 11 years, my family lived in Europe and so from three to uh, almost 15 we lived over there I went to school over there and my experience with life here in the US was summer based and so I think like one Christmas for whatever reason we ended up back here now summer as as a kid is joy it is time free and in my upbringing it was lots of television lots of coke and lots of pizza very little parental or grandparent or rental supervision right It was staying up all night drinking a case of Coke and wetting the bed. I mean, it was good, glorious, and wonderful, except for the wetting the bed part. And so in the midst of these things, my my experience and the things I thought about life in this country was lived in that short time, so it was just the most amazing place ever. And then we we would go back to life uh, in Europe, in school, and every year we would have new people come from the States, and they would talk about how great America was, and it was the greatest place you could ever be, and it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was just the greatest, they didn't say it that way, but it was just the greatest thing you could ever experience. And so it was leading me to be frustrated with where I was and excited about the possibility of what it would look like to come back. Well, at the end of my eighth grade year, going into my first year of high school, my dad got uh, a transfer and we moved from Stavanger, Norway to Lafayette, Louisiana. And I'm just thinking, this is the land that flows with Anyway, and so we're there, we're there in, in Lafayette, and, and it's the summer, and so it's great, and so it's carefree, it's wonderful, it's just all this awesomeness, and, and we're transitioning, and we're getting ready, and I'm finally getting ready to experience everything all the guys and girls that have gone to my schools over the years have talked about life in America, right? Life in the U.S. Some of them said it like that. anyway. And so we go there, and it's great, but then school starts. And I go from a class size of 15 to 20 to a class size of about 700. And I go from a, a private school in, in Western Europe to a public school in Lafayette, Louisiana. And I come to recognize, boy, that grass isn't always greener on the other side. And I come to recognize, recognize, I had it pretty great. Western Europe was pretty awesome. I loved the life that I had lost when we moved over. And I began to experience what I I think this word perfectly encapsulates, disillusionment. Now, disillusionment, it's, it's a feeling of disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as one believed it to be. Now, one of the things we find in the midst of the Bible is occasionally we go through and, and, and what we see in the unfolding narrative of the people of God is that the people of God, as they go through their lives, they experience that same feeling of disillusionment. Look with me at Ezra 3. Ezra 3. Ezra 3, they're, they're, they're back in the land, and they're there, and they're, they're surveying all the things they need to do and how they need to go about things. And the first thing they do is Zerubbabel comes in and he says, what we need is the altar. We need to rebuild the altar so we can offer sacrifices. And so they do that. Look at chapter 3 and verses 5 and 6. It says, and after, the, after that, they offered regular burnt offerings for the offerings of the new moon and the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day to the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple was not yet laid so they come back and Jerusalem has been sacked the walls are down the temple is no more Zerubbabel says we're going to solve this we're going to get out we're going to build the altar they begin to offer sacrifices but we're told in the midst of this that the temple had not been built yet the foundation had not been laid yet look down at verses 10 through 13 look at 10 through 13. It says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestment came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, the king of Israel. And so this is the scene. They come forward, and there are trumpets, and there are cymbals. So it's like, bang, 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 bang. And so it's just, there, there's all this excitement and all of this joy in the midst of these things. And this is what they sang. It says, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They were overjoyed. Finally, there's movement. Finally, we're getting traction. Finally, life is returning to what we want it to be. But look what he says. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the Father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house of the Lord being laid. And many shouted up with shouts of joy. So that it could not be distinguished that day, the sound from the joyful shouts from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now, in the midst of this, they get there, and, 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 and they're looking around, and what they recognize is that this is different. And so you've got the people that they remember what the temple looked like. They remember what the temple looked like. They remember what it was like to, to be there and be before it, and they see the foundation kind of laid out, and it stops them. And it arrests them in their pace. Because they say, this isn't, this isn't what this should look like. And they reflect on what they've lost and they weep. And you've got the other group over here, and they're just excited to be back in the land. They've heard all about it. They didn't know what it was going to be like. They heard it was going to be more like Disneyland than Disney World, but they're just ready to get on the ride. And when they see it laid out, they don't have a a past memory to compare it against. All they see is this is God moving. And they shout and rejoice. But you have. You have there this recognition that it's it's not just a matter that the building is going to be insignificant to what is before. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon has dedicated the temple, he's he's offered up burnt offerings to the Lord in this place. And we see something decidedly different happen in 2 Chronicles than we do when the exiles return. It says, as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering. And the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house and when all the people of Israel saw the fire came down come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple they bowed down their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worship and gave thanks to the Lord saying for he is everybody say good for his steadfast love endures forever You see, in the midst of this, as the exiles came back into the land, and those who had memory of the temple, and those who had heard tell of his presence, and what it was like when fire fell from heaven, they looked around and said, this isn't how it should be. Our homes and our homeland are devastated. Our fields are sown with rocks. The temple is laying in waste. In their hearts they would say god you brought us back after 70 years in captivity we heard the voice of jeremiah over and over again in our heads you're going to go back he has a plan he has a purpose you're going to go back he's going to build he's going to restore he's going to return but we're back and this is not what we waited for this is not what we want And when they reflected upon the Lord and when they reflected upon his promises, what it led to for them was this. You are the God of disillusionment. You are the God of disappointment. You are the God of promises that are unfulfilled. You are the God of disillusionment. number of years later, flip to Matthew 21. Jesus, near the end of his ministry, is headed towards Jerusalem. And people hear about his coming, and they hear that he's headed that way, and there's, there's no small amount of excitement that begins to build in the hearts of men and women that Jesus is coming That the king is coming. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her, and untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything, do you shall say to them, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. Matthew writes and says this took place to fulfill what was being spoken by the prophet saying say to the daughter of Zion behold your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them they brought the donkey and the colt and they put on their cloaks and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and cut, others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus the Na- from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus is headed into his final trip into Jerusalem with the disciples and in the midst of it, people are excited that he is coming back to town. And and, and so Jesus sends the disciples out, they grab the donkey and they grab the colt and he's riding upon them and in the midst of this, People start coming out, and so Jesus is kind of this entourage traveling through So Everybody's throwing their jackets down on the ground. Everybody has the palm fronds. They're throwing them down on the ground, and they're praising, and essentially they're crying out, Hosanna, save us. This is who he is. And everything in their demonstration, and everything in their posture, and everything coming out of their mouth is telling us this, they thought he was the king. They thought he was the one coming to set them free. He is the warrior king they've waited for. He's the one that they've been anxiously anticipating would come and to set them free from Rome, would come and set them free from oppression, would come and set them free from everything they hated about the way their lives were. So they praise him. So they praise. him. But what do we know? We know they greeted him with praise. They greeted him with cheers. But when he didn't turn out to be a warrior king, when he he didn't come into town and say, hey, listen, that's it, everybody behind me, we're going to rally together, we're going to meet at the temple, we're going to march down, we're going to drive these Romans out of here. When he didn't do that, he failed to live up to their expectations. He failed to live up to generations of built-in expectation, generations, hundreds of years of expectation that when the Messiah comes, he's going to set all of this stuff free. And so they look at Jesus. And it's easy to see in some sense how their cries on the basis of their expectation move from Hosanna, save us, to crucify Because when they look at Jesus, they say to him, you are the God of disillusion. You're not doing what we want you to do. You're not doing what we expected. you to do. He is the God of disillusion. Now in this moment in Ezra, they lay the temple And one of their expectations is that life is going to return to all the stories they'd heard in the past. They have in their minds in some sense that this Davidic king they're waiting on is going to be a king just like David. That he's going to restore the boundaries, he's going to expand their land, there's going to be better infrastructure. They're going to be the place that people come to. They're going to experience stability and they're going to experience the power, the presence of God in the temple those things don't happen now Zechariah which is what Matthew's quoting from here Zechariah happens to be a contemporary of Ezra and Haggai now Zechariah within his prophetic word in chapter 9 and verses 1 through 8 he tells about this one who's going to come and he's going to run roughshod over all of the enemies of Israel He's going he's to bring Egypt down. He's going to bring this country down, and this country down, and this country down. Essentially, he moves through all the ones who had oppressed them in the past, and he's going to obliterate. He's going to take care of them. But look at the shift in Zechariah 9.9. We move from this scene of power and might To rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. They want a king. Righteous and having salvation in he. We want him to be righteous. We want him to set us free and give us salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. You see, God is the God of disillusionment to them because they failed to understand God's plan and his purposes. God did not send them back into the land to restore them to their former ways of disobedience. God sent them back into the land and God speaks through the prophet Zechariah to set up a coming king who would destroy the ability to feel this sense of disillusion his messiah his king and this king isn't going to come as a warrior king this king is going to come as the prince of peace now matthew 21 as jesus is coming in in the midst of these things all the crowds greet him and, and and they're just glad to be there some people are just there because they like a party some people are there because they recognize that that They've they've kind of read the words, they've heard about it, and Jesus is fitting some of the pieces of the puzzle, and they're not really sure how all these things are going together, but they think he's going to be the one. But before Jesus makes it to Bethphage, before he gets on the donkey, Jesus takes the disciples aside, and in Matthew chapter 20, he tells them this, starting in verse 17. It says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. See, the feeling they had in their hearts and in their experience that he is the God of disillusionment, these things occurred because they had a misunderstanding of what Jesus was there to do. Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on a war horse to drive the Romans out. Jesus, in the very embodiment, and the manner in which he came, was so incredibly different than their expectations. He wasn't on a war horse. He wasn't on this retinue that people were carrying in. He wasn't riding on the back of a chariot, whipping it and saying, Yahoo, get up! This is what their expectation was. But slowly he made his way in on it. Slowly he lumbered along. And if they had in their minds, not a warrior king, but if they had in their minds this picture that Isaiah gives us of a suffering servant, their picture would be changed. See, Isaiah 53 in verses 4 through 7 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, if they had in some sense an understanding of the suffering servant Comes The prince of peace comes, humble, lowly, mounted on a donkey is he. If they had this right sense of who Jesus is and why Jesus comes, they would not have met him on the road with shouts and cheers and cloaks and branches. They would have met him on the road with eyes full of tears and hearts broken. Because Jesus didn't head into the midst of these things to establish his kingdom on earth. Jesus headed into the midst of their sorrow, their disobedience, their pain, so they might be set free. And if they had a right understanding of who God is and why Jesus came, they would not have experienced this sense of disillusion. I think for many of us, and and the more people I talk to, I become convinced of this that 2020, for us, if we're to reflect upon it, and you're to be honest in your heart and to think about who God is and how you experience Him over this year, and you just kind of add up event after event after event, that you would say He is the God of disillusionment. You think back to the beginning of the pandemic, maybe you heard that it was just this thing kind of taking place in china and you saw a few funny videos and you thought those people are nuts that'll never come here and it kind of made its way here and you thought this isn't a big deal it's just going to be on the coast it's just going to be kind of here in these cities it'll never make its way to Greenville. it won't be such a big deal and you begin to hear more and more people talk about praying against it and all these things And you're like god's got this we're totally fine and secure And then it just started moving. and It started impacting the way that we live our lives and your ability even to leave your home. And, and, and like, how are these things? And like, can I hug you? Can we shake hands? Like, I don't really know what's going on because I hear this from this person, this from this person, this from this person. And they all seem to be very, very sure. There's one thing we didn't lack for was certainty. I'm pretty uncertain about a lot of other things, but I'm very sure about that. I'm very, very sure about how these things are going to work. It seemed like our prayers didn't change things. It seemed like our plans didn't matter. It seems like no matter what steps we took to be safe, somehow those things, all they did was kind of hack people off and make people angry. Every best laid plan and every way you wanted to couch it and explain it to somebody, there was always someone that would disagree with you and tell you all the various ways that you were ignorant and ridiculous. Didn't, didn't really matter what opinion you were holding to. There was always somebody willing to say, I'm, I'm willing to argue with you and tell you you're a fool. I think that was a job in 2020. You could get paid for that. $600 a week. And we looked at that, and our, our experience with God was to say, I'm disappointed in you. Can you not handle this? Jobs started going away. Family members started getting sick. We threw in a presidential election just to add this really special cherry on top. (laughs) I guess because there weren't enough things to disagree with. And we cried out to the Lord, what is wrong with you? It shouldn't be like this. And we began to feel conflicted because it's so strange for a Christian to be disappointed in the Lord. And it's so strange for Christians to be in this, this feeling of I'm so disappointed in the Lord and I'm so disappointed in us and how we're going through this and how we're experiencing this. And so I can come to no other conclusion than to say this. You are the God of disillusionment. It should not be this way. This has been the experience that too many of us have gone through this year. You know, maybe it didn't apply to the pandemic. Maybe it had nothing to do with the election or the unrest for you. But just for whatever reason, in the midst of your life this year, you fan- found your family spreading apart. You and your spouse were struggling. You and your kids were struggling. You and your friends were struggling together. Life in general, if you were just to describe it, you would say, this is harder than it should be. And when you assign culpability, when you assign responsibility, when you want to look around and say, you are to blame, you point at the heavens and you say, you are the God of disillusion. We will stay there. We will feel that. And we will not move beyond that feeling if we don't give ourselves to an understanding of who he is and his purposes in the midst of difficulty. And listen, we don't find this on the far side of dealing with difficulty and saying, ah, I can finally breathe or I'm finally used to the discomfort. I'm finally used to the pain. Man, I can deal with this because I'm, I'm finally, I, I, just, I just know, I just need to readjust my expectations and, 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 and settle my expectation on being okay with disappointment. That's not the way. We find ourselves moving beyond disillusionment when we begin to apply who he is and his purposes in the midst of Difficulties and Jesus does this so well. In John chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus speaking says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have, and everybody say, peace. Where is your peace found? It's found in Jesus. And Jesus tells us, He says, In the world you will have trouble. Has this been your experience in 2020? In this world, you'll have trouble. Very few of us came out the other side of it and said, I don't know what everybody's upset about. I don't know what everybody's complaining about. I've experienced no trouble and no disappointment in this. Jesus says it plainly. In this world, you'll have trouble. But in me, everybody say, peace. But in me, you'll find peace. So Jesus says, in the midst of this, because you can only find your peace in me, because you're going to experience trouble in the world, take heart. I've overcome the world. But do we believe this? Do we believe this? In the midst of experiencing setbacks and disappointments and difficulty and suffering and anguish and anxiety, we remember that he has overcome the world. And there's this terrific reminder that Jesus tells the disciples that our suffering more closely aligns our hearts to Jesus. God sovereignly, according to his purposes, allows the difficulties of our lives to reveal our hearts and to drive us to Jesus. He tells the disciples, He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. And if they've kept my word, they will keep yours. When you experience suffering in this world, overt persecution or you're just suffering because you're in this world, God uses that suffering to transform your heart to be more like Jesus. The world uses that suffering to create in you disillusionment, bitterness, and hurt. Jesus wants to see you set free. This is why peace is only ever found in him. And trouble is what we experience in the world. Now the place and purpose for a believer in the midst of difficulty in this world And how we're supposed to be seen in the midst of these things is not that that God has given us this Teflon coating that when trouble hits you, it just slides off. It's not that he's given you this bulletproof vest that, that trouble never finds you, it never touches you. If that's what you think of Christianity, you're mistaken. God gives to you by the power of his Holy Spirit and he equips you that in the midst of difficulties... And suffering and disappointment and anxiety and depression and sickness and pandemic and unrest. And all of these things, God gives you a light inside of you. That is his Holy Spirit. So the way that a Christian goes through difficulty is decidedly different than a lost person. So in a very real sense, a lost person should be able to walk up to you and say, listen, I know a great deal about you, you share with me all that's going on in your life, but still in the midst of just a, I hope you don't mind me saying this, your life's pretty terrible, but just in the midst of your, 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 your terrible manner of existence, there still seems to be something in you sustaining you. It's not that you're wearing a smile on your face, it's not that you're running around Uh, high-fiving people, but there seems to be something inside of you that sustains you and carries you on when everybody else is crying in the ditch. What is it? And the only answer we have for people in the midst of those times is to say, it's Jesus. Jesus sustains. Jesus empowers. Jesus keeps me steadfast because in him there is listen, you might have come in this morning or you might be watching online and and, and you hear this talk and you hear this discussion and you say, y'all people are crazy. But I recognize over the last year, I recognize that over the last decades of my life that I'm, I'm unable to sustain peace. So I want to know more about this one who could give me peace. Listen, interest in you towards Jesus is a movement of God's Holy Spirit. God tells us that in his word, that Jesus came in the fullness of time, that being himself perfect, he took on your sin. And the Bible tells us that the punishment, that the penalty for sin is death. And Jesus, as he headed towards Jerusalem, he headed there to die for you, for your sin. That a just and righteous God poured out his wrath on Jesus. Jesus suffered the consequences of your sin and of my sin. And suffering those consequences and dying and entering into the grave, God raised him back to life again. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose to life again. And in his living and resurrection, he extends to you the forgiveness of sins. Man, if you're in this room and you feel interest in your mind and in your heart moving towards Jesus, I want you to hear me say this. This is not you. This is God calling you. This is not you being interested. This is God giving you interest. He is calling you to himself. And so in these next moments, as we have opportunity to pray, we're going to have men and women gathered in this place who would love to pray with you and share with you about how you can find peace in this world of trouble how you can truly be set free, and how you can come to know Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hey, listen, we're going to do something a little bit different. Over the last few weeks, we've been gathering on Thursday nights for a time of prayer together. And each one of those Thursday nights, what we've done is we've had men and women just uh, across the front, and we've had the ability for people to come forward and to pray with them. If you came into this place and, 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 and where you are even now is to say he is the God of disillusionment. He's the God of disappointment. He's the God of unrealized promise. You be, but you begin to sense that God is softening your heart and you need to pray with someone. You want to talk to someone. Let me encourage you in this time to come forward and to pray with one of these men and women that are going to be across the front of this room. Let me encourage you to come forward and to lay down your sense of disillusionment. To take up freedom. Don't allow this world to steal your peace. Be made whole again. Be made new again. Come forward and pray, okay? Hey, at this time, if you've been one of our regular prayers And maybe some of the ones I spoke to before the service, if I could ask you just to come down to the front, some of the different men and women, if I could get some of the elders and elder candidates, maybe you want to come forward with your wife to do this, this would be great if you kind of come down to the front, just so you could be here for those to come forward and to pray with. As these men and women are coming, let me pray with you, and then we'll have a time of of worship through a couple of songs, and this will be the time for you to come forward and to pray with one of them. Father God, thank you so much uh, for these men, for their wives, for this opportunity to worship you in prayer and in song. God, I thank you for this time that we can lay down the burdens of this feeling of disillusionment. So God, would you burden our hearts? Would you humble us? As you lead us in this time of prayer, we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.